Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro. As always, I appreciate you tuning into the podcast. We've created a questionnaire to better understand you, the listener, and what it is that keeps you coming back to listen to the podcast. We want to know what's working for you and what you want more and possibly less of. Please take a few minutes to head over to bit.ly forward slash made visible podcast to fill this out. Again, that's bit.ly forward slash made visible podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. So last summer, my team of doctors at the National Institutes of Health informed me that the Discovery Channel was airing a series called First in Human. The title of the show references the fact that each of the four featured patients was receiving a treatment that had never been used before to treat their illness. They were chosen by the NIH as candidates for this risky process because they had exhausted other medical avenues. One of the patients was an adorable girl named Lucy, who just so happens to have the same condition that I do, hyper-IgE, Job syndrome, and we share the same doctor at the NIH. It was really intense for me to watch the series last summer, as Lucy has been through the ringer. I was quick to find her mom, Jan, on Facebook to offer any support and let her know if Lucy ever wanted to connect with me as she gets older, I'd be happy to chat with her. I was also really interested to hear about Jan's life and what it's been like to be a caregiver. So what better place to do that than here on the podcast? I'm honored to have Jan Weiss on the podcast. Welcome, Jan. Thanks so much, Harper. It's good to be here. So happy to have you here. So let's start. Tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. So I am um, a mom to Lucy, as you mentioned, who's 10. And I also have a son, Joel, who's seven, he's turning eight in just a few days. I'm sure he would want me to mention that, that he's not (laughs) almost eight. Yes, it's a big deal, you know, it's a big deal at this age. Um, My husband and I live in the Richmond, Virginia area, and we do are thankful for our proximity to the NIH because that's been a really important place for us for Lucy's health. But I, my life over the past 10 years especially has, or I would say over the past seven years particularly, has been really heavily involved in taking care of Lucy and learning about the illness and, you know, kind of revolving my life around, my life has come to somewhat revolve around that more or less at different times in many ways. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where I am now. And I'm, I'm a former teacher and now I have uh, transitioned to a homeschool teacher as Lucy is still not quite in the position to go back to school full time. And what did you teach when you were teaching prior to Lucy? I taught elementary school. I taught third grade for one year and second grade for two years. So Lucy's now in fourth grade. So we're leaving a little bit of my, what I know a little bit better, but you know, at this point I can handle it's still elementary school. I'll need a little more help as she gets older, I'm sure. And are you running the homeschool yourself? I am for the most part. She does do a homeschool co-op that's one day a week, which is really helpful because it gives us a kind of a starting point, a jumping off point for our curriculum. And we 
go over a bunch of new material every week. And from there, we can dig in deeper as we choose at home. And it gives us community, too, and a social outlet for her. Yeah, of course, that's really important with all of this. So tell us a little bit about Lucy and her experience with Job syndrome. Sure, yeah. And I I could spend a much longer time, so I'm going to try to keep it brief here. And there's definitely more information out there. Um, for anyone interested with First and Human, and there's uh, another articles from Washington Post and other outlets. But Lucy, when she was three years old, was diagnosed with Job syndrome. I didn't know anything about it at the time. I had never even heard of it. And when she was first diagnosed, it was definitely a slow learning experience because initially it looked like on the spectrum of things, Lucy's symptoms seemed to be more mild compared to some, she dealt, she had a lot of the definite clinical markers of Job's. But at the same time, some of the more serious and life-threatening aspects are ones that we had not seen yet. When she was first diagnosed, she did not have any lung infections, lung damage, or lung disease, which are some of the scarier problems with Job's, as you know. So it was a slow learning process. By the time she was four, she did unfortunately begin having pneumonia. Her very first pneumonia was, we got right into it. (laughs) She was very, very sick, almost died. She was in a medically induced coma for two weeks, but she did manage to pull through and made a a mostly full recovery. She was left with some lung damage. And from that point on, she did continue to get every year to a lesser degree, but still serious pneumonias. So that kind of set off a more serious trajectory for her. And by the time she was seven, she her the damage in her lungs was getting worse every year, even though she wasn't dealing with really intense life-threatening illnesses necessarily. We, we were at a point where it didn't look like it was really sustainable for her to continue as we were. And we were doing everything we could medically at that point for her in terms of prophylaxis. She was doing IVIG infusions, which are basically antibodies from donated blood that she was being infused with to to boost her immune system. And none of that was really getting us over this critical hump to where it looked like she was at a sustainable point. It didn't look like she was would be able to keep this up for but so many more years. So when she was about seven, her doctor recommended that we pursue an experimental bone marrow transplant, which was the focus of the documentary, First in Human. And at that point, it's still now, bone marrow transplant is not, it's not a curative for Job syndrome. And it's definitely something we're learning more about, but it seems that a lot of people are having a lot of benefit from it. And I would say, it was a really long road for us, for sure, two, two years that were really difficult with her transplant. But now that we are on the other side of it, I do feel like she has received a tremendous benefit. At this point, she's 10. She's been, she hasn't been hospitalized for pneumonia for over a year, which is really amazing. That's so she's, huge. It's huge. I mean, it's something I never thought I'd be able to say, honestly. So it's to me, it's all been worth it. And she does have a lot of smaller issues that we're dealing with. Some are related to Job. Some are kind of some carryover from all she went through in her transplant. But at this point, our main focus was really extending her, the length of her life and improving the quality of her life. And I feel like we've achieved that for sure. That's incredible. 
So what are the things that are affecting her on a daily basis? That's a good question. It's funny because we have so many different systems of the body still affected. She still has a lot of the gross motor and musculoskeletal issues that are related to Job's. She has hypermobility, which causes gross motor delay. She has a little bit of a harder time with walking, running, jumping, some of those things that kids love to do and her brother does so that are, are harder for her. And she sees physical therapy for that. She has low bone density from Job syndrome. And that unfortunately has been exacerbated by the fact that she also has now some somewhat new adrenal issues. She has had to be on high dose steroids for inflammatory pneumonia over the past few years. And now her body is somewhat reliant on steroids for natural adrenal function. So, and unfortunately the steroids do lower bone density. So she's had, I would say probably five or six fractures over the past three years. So she has to be really careful with that. And we have to carry her hydrocortisone with us all the time, just in case we have some medical event because she won't produce adrenaline like I would or many others would. And so we have to give that to her manually. So she has that, she has some renal, some kidney, some mild kidney function issues that are probably related to some of the critical illness she's faced. She has some pulmonary function um, problems too. She has lost, she had her right lower lobe removed during her transplant recovery. So she's got a little bit of a decreased lung capacity. She has some mild skin issues as still. You know, those are the, probably the biggest things. We have to be really careful watching her during cold and flu season because she still doesn't, we know that she still doesn't produce certain antibodies to vaccines even. So we vaccinate her, but we still have to boost her with her IVIG infusions, even though she's post-transplant. So we've seen a tremendous amount of improvement, um, but we still do have to spend a good amount of time in the doctor's office or managing her health still day to day. Right. And how did you get to the NIH? We were really, really fortunate because when Lucy was diagnosed, we were living in the D.C. area at the time, and she was at Georgetown Hospital. She was had been hospitalized for thrush twice, really close together. And we heard, I didn't know this at the time, that thrush is something that is really only a problem for people with compromised immune systems or the very young or the elderly who obviously have weakened immune systems as well. So it just so happened that the um, infectious disease specialist for children at Georgetown knew and had worked with Dr. Freeman at the NIH. So she recognized Lucy's symptoms almost immediately. And she said, I think this is what's going on. And I, I know this is who you need to see. So we had a very little gap in between our probable diagnosis and being sent to the NIH. So it was pretty much immediate. They were the first people we really saw and talked to specifically about hyper IgE. And I think so many people have to wait so long or maybe have never even heard of the NIH who have jokes. And I know that's the case for you. Absolutely. I mean, as you know, my story, it took 10 years for me to be diagnosed. And my mom spent so much time trying to figure out what was going on with me. No one had any answers. Right. To your point, when we started recording, 
you know, this is not a common thing. There's only 300 of us diagnosed in the world in 2018. So we're talking, you know, 1995, I was diagnosed. Right. Yes. <laughs> like a whole other time. And what's interesting about the NIH in my story is that when I was diagnosed, my immunologist here in New York was the one who said, hey, I think you should go down there. Like, these are the only people that are really researching that. Right. I didn't want to be a guinea pig. And I wasn't dealing with as serious things as Lucy is. So for me, it was like, I'll just deal with the symptoms and who cares about this big picture thing. But once I actually went down to the NIH six and a half years ago, my life was forever changed. I mean, I remember being in the car ride down there and being so scared and so like, oh, who are these people going to be? They're the warmest, most wonderful people I have ever interacted with. Oh my goodness. I spend hours of my life trying to figure out how I can give something back to them. I we totally agree. I mean, we have been so blown away by not even just the medical professionals there. Really, it's hard. You really don't, you can't really understand it unless you go there because it's a really, it's such an amazing place and people that are truly dedicated to the well-being of patients and their families. And and we really are so, so fortunate because Lucy was diagnosed at an incredibly young age for Job syndrome. You know, three is really young, all things considered. And to be immediately pointed to NIH is, is kind of unheard of. So we really did not know Job syndrome without NIH at any point for the most part, which I'm so thankful for. Absolutely. So let's get into more of your sort of day-to-day. What is a typical day like for you? And does that even exist? That's a good question, yes. Um, not A typical day doesn't really exist, I would guess. It, it, it kind of depends. Most days we get up and start school around 9, 9.30. But even that is variable. One thing I, I failed to mention earlier when discussing Lucy's current health is that She has had some blood pressure issues come up that are somewhat related to her underlying diagnosis and somewhat related to just dealing with other medical issues that have come up in the the meantime. And so she's on blood pressure medication that's in a patch form and can make her tired some days. Some days she's more awake. So there are some days she wakes up and needs to go back to bed within an hour and take a nap. And some days she's ready to go full speed by 7 a.m. So it kind of depends on where she is in her medication cycle. But we try to get school started in the morning. I would I'd love to get school done, you know, early in the day if I can. But at the same time, we also have certain days we'll have to go to into Richmond, which is about 30 minutes away for doctor's appointments or she has physical therapy once a week. So there's not a typical day. We Most days we try to get school done, and most days we have something else going on, whether it's physical therapy or swimming or doctor's appointments. And it can kind of look different depending what the calendar <laughs> and how she's feeling too. Right. And so how do you cope with the daily stresses of being a caregiver to a child? It's not, it's not easy for sure. Um, Depending on how stressful things are, I'm really thankful that I have a really good support system in my husband. I have really wonderful friends from homeschool groups and from our church and that are a huge support to me. I've learned to be really intentional with my time for myself too, and to make sure that I do have time for myself, whether it's early in the morning before my kids get up or 
midday if my husband's home and I can just run out and be alone for a little bit or he, he's really good about taking the kids to do stuff too but I've learned to be really intentional with my time and make sure that I do have time for myself and I've learned to also give myself a lot of grace too that during there's seasons in life where certain things don't happen and that's okay um learning to you know, get takeout for dinner or just little things that just to take things off my plate on a busy day. If we're at the, if we're in clinic one afternoon and it ends up going hours longer than I expected, we will pick up pizza on the way home, you know, and not worry about making dinner that night. So just learning to, to let things go too. Yeah. And you, you brought up a really good point about taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. How do you prioritize you and your self-care and your well-being? It's not easy. And I've had to, and I think it helps a lot to have people in my life to encourage me to do that, which I'm thankful that I do. You know, my husband really encourages me as do my friends um, really encourage me. We, all four of us, we've been had counseling at times, which has been, it's been hugely helpful for the kids too. Um, Just people to talk to, to share what's going on in our hearts and how we're feeling about things, people that we can be totally honest with. So really just giving myself time to just for myself doing things that I enjoy doing and not be, because it's easy to be so totally consumed with parenting Lucy, as well as my son, who's healthy, and there's a whole other set of issues there. So it's so easy to be consumed with that, but having to be really intentional and planning for, or having someone say to me, you need to go do something by yourself. Or to have my husband say, okay, I'm going to take the kids to my parents for a few days and you're going to be home alone for a few days, you know, that kind of thing. Someone forcing me to just take time to myself is really important too sometimes. What does fun look like for you? That's a really good question. That's something that I I think that I've really grappled with as an adult after after Lucy has kind of come through some of her harder stretches, especially, I love being with my friends, doing fun things with other girlfriends. You know, I had a girlfriend come over a couple of nights ago just to hang out and have some food and wine, going out with friends on just for a couple hours at night, going shopping, just hanging out with myself, going to read. I love reading. I love spending time with my husband, just spending time with people. Or I also, I'm an introvert as well, so I love doing things by myself, going for walks, reading, just enjoying the quiet sometimes, simply just being in the quiet. <laughs> it's interesting. I produced a podcast with a friend of mine earlier this summer called We Are Mothers. And the most recent episode of the podcast featured a story of a woman running into an old friend who said to her, so are you just a mom now? Uh, yeah. And it's the story that really I, I'm, I'm sharing this because I think everyone should listen to this episode because it's such a compelling story. But I wonder how you identify yourself at this point. And, you know, you were a teacher. You can say you still are a teacher. I know you're not just a mom and you're not just a caregiver. How does that resonate with you that concept yeah it it really does to be honest because it's a struggle and I mean it's really easy to feel like just a mother or just a caregiver and there were periods of time especially where I was so consumed even more acutely than now with caring for Lucy and caring for my son who was on the also having to deal with things on from his end that it really I, I did feel like I was pretty much all that I was and you kind of lose yourself and it's really tricky to Find, okay, what are my passions? What are my things that really get me excited? 
And that's something that I've kind of had to find my way back to in some ways as she's gotten healthier and as my kids have gotten older in terms of, you know, what are my passions? What are my things that I really care about? And the, the, the causes that are really important to me and the, the things that really out in the world that make my heart beat and that I really feel passionate about. And even just caring for other families in the midst of difficult medical situations is something that has always been a big passion for me, but it's so easy. It's so easy to feel like I'm just a mom. And, you know, there's been times when people have asked me that question, what do you, what do you like to do for fun? And I've honestly thought, I have no idea what I like to do for fun because I don't really know what that looks like to have time for fun. So it's something that I've had to really intentionally seek out too, because it's so easy to lose yourself in everything else you have going on and not even think about what that would look like to enjoy things just for you. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty crazy how that works and how you really have to prioritize it and make sure that you sort of fit it into your schedule because otherwise no one else is doing that for you. Right. And it's so, and everyone's busy. Everyone's got stuff going on and it's, you really do have to advocate for yourself. I'm so busy advocating for my daughter but I also have to advocate for myself. And we were really blessed and thankful because even when Lucy was, again, up at the NIH, which is so wonderful, we had a really amazing support up there through the NIH. Lucy had a psychologist, a child psychologist for inpatients who would come and meet with her, who was just as much of a support to me as Lucy, honestly. And she encouraged me to go take time for myself, go get a cup of coffee, go for a walk, just get out a little bit, get away from the hospital room. I'm here. I'm going to play with her. And just having people that say, you need to go away for a little while. You need to leave. Even when Lucy was uh, inpatient up at the NIH, she was up there for about five months for her transplant. And my husband and I would usually switch off about every week or two. He would come up and take over for me. And I would go home for a week or so. And we got into a rhythm where I would, he'd come up, He'd get up to Bethesda in the evenings, and I would hang out with him and Lucy for a little bit. And then instead of driving straight home, I would go over to the Children's Inn, which is there somewhat like a Ronald McDonald house, I guess is my best comparison. But they also support families of kids in treatment. And I'd get a room at the Children's Inn, which is on campus, and I would spend the night just by myself in that hotel room before going home to my son. And that was so important to me because I needed just one night where I was away from the hospital, away from all the noises and all the beeps and everything going on there before heading home to my son, who also was definitely needing me too. Just I had a little bit of a buffer in between and that was really important and really gave me some strength to keep going. That's amazing that you were able to figure out that rhythm and determine what was best for you because you're a priority too. And obviously as a parent or most parents, they prioritize their kids, especially going through something like this. But you knew in order to be a good parent to your son and to yes. Lucy, there was value in this. Yes. And I think that I had to even be encouraged in that thinking that I can't, I can't go straight back home and go straight back into doing that without taking a minute just to kind of collect myself and get a good night's sleep even. So that was really, that ended up being hugely beneficial for my own mental health. So this is something that I've really thought a lot about in interviewing you is what's it like to be the parent to one child with a chronic condition and another who lives a quote unquote normal life? 
that's a good question and I really appreciate that because it's something that it's been on, on my heart a lot but it's it's really challenging and it's had to really stretch me in a lot of ways and it's been a learning process and at times I have not I've had to learn from my own mistakes at times and I've had to really think about how he responds and how he feels about these things but it really is stretching and, and for him from his perspective and he's a really go with the flow, easygoing kid. He's wonderful. And he really loves his sister. I think in in many ways, because of what Lucy's been through, he's more compassionate than I think a lot of boys his age, which I'm thankful for. But he also, he feels it acutely. And there's been times where I haven't realized what he's needed until after the fact. And I've had to, okay, I need to regroup how I do this. And I need to make sure that I am there for him in ways that I didn't realize. And you know, for him, from his perspective, our lives had to revolve around Lucy for years and not for a good reason that's fun for her, but all the same, our lives have had to revolve around her. So it's, it's been challenging to see, okay, how do we support him? How do we make sure that he feels that he is as important as she is to us? Because he is, obviously, and she just has a lot more day-to-day care. Uh, but just making sure that he feels important, that he feels loved and treasured and special. And she obviously has gotten a lot of media attention because of what she's been through over the past couple of years. And just making sure that he is not feeling kind of in the background too much, that He's a huge part of her story, too, and that we try to really encourage him and saying, you know, you are a huge encouragement to, to your sister. When things are hard for Lucy, we know they're hard for you, too. And this is, you know, trying to get him to encouraging him to talk about his, how he feels about things and share and making sure that I have time that's just me and him or that my husband has that's just him and Joel, too. But it's definitely challenging. It's made me have to really be intentional with my time. Yeah, that's got to be really challenging. So can you give an example of one of those times where you realized something after the fact that needed to be handled potentially differently? Yes, I can. Um, A couple. One one that comes to mind specifically is when Lucy was in, I believe it was the right after, about a year after her transplant, she got really, really sick again with pneumonia and was in the hospital for probably six weeks, acutely ill on, on again, on life support, on a med- in a medically induced coma. And it was around Christmas time this was all happening. And my son was in kindergarten at the time. And he's always been a really independent kid. I've never felt like he wanted me around at school that much. He kind of wanted to be with his friends. So I didn't really think that much about, you know, he had a, a winter holiday party coming up. And Lucy had, had been really sick. I think it was about a week into her hospitalization and my in-laws had come to stay with us to help with Joel. And it was the day of his winter party, and I didn't really think much about it. I hadn't volunteered to go in. But that later that day, I came home from the hospital, and I was hanging out with my son, and something just seemed off. I don't know what it was. He just, I don't know if he was kind of having a hard time with his behavior. I could just tell something wasn't right. And so I was sitting with him, and I said, tell me what's going on. I said, listen, I know that... I know that this can feel not fair to you. And I said, you can tell me how you're feeling. And he he has a hard time, I think, sometimes articulating his feelings. And he said to me, he said, it feels unfair that my friend's moms were at the party today and you weren't because of Lucy, because Lucy is in the hospital. And I thought, oh, my goodness. 
And I said, you're right. That's not fair. That's not fair to you. It's, it's totally not fair. And it was a good chance for me to say, you know, at that point, Lucy was actually not conscious. So I probably could have been at the party, but I had never thought about it. But little things like that where I thought, he's seeing this acutely as my mom's not here because of Lucy. Um, and so it was a good chance for me to affirm him and say, you're right. That's not fair. And I'm really sorry. I should have been there. You know, he's he does have to deal with a lot and put up with a lot of sacrifice because of her. There's so many times where there have been times where he is picked up from the bus stop by someone, not us last minute, and then ends up spending the night at a friend's house. Or there was one time where we had to call 911 at like one in the morning because Lucy was really sick and we had a neighbor come over and I think Joel woke up around three in the morning just to our neighbor being here when we were all gone. So he really does have to put up with so much and just trying to encourage him to voice that. But there's times where I thought, oh, I could have been there for him and it would have been actually pretty easy for me to be there for that holiday party. I just didn't think about it and I didn't think about that, how that would affect him. So it made me be more intentional with okay, times where I can be with him. Let me make sure, is this a time where you want me to be there? Well, you officially won for being the first person to make me cry on the podcast. <laughs> that was the story that made me cry. For I think I actually started crying when he said that. And then it was funny because he didn't know what to do when he was, you know, five years old and like getting me tissues and like stopping up my eyes. <laughs> And she's like, it's okay, mommy. And I I said, it's okay, buddy. I said, I want you to tell me. I want you to be honest. I want you to say these things to me. So, yeah, it was definitely a a very humbling moment. And I was really honored, honestly, that he was, was honest with me. Obviously, that's a huge thing, having him be honest and giving him the space to be able to share what he's experiencing, because this can't be easy for him either. Right. To be that young and to watch his sister go through this and obviously not have all the attention on him. But it sounds from your perspective, like you really do what you can to keep him recognizing that he's equally as important, but that things have to be handled differently. What did you do in that moment? Did you walk away and cry more? Did you? No, I stayed with him. And it was, it was definitely challenging because it hit me and I thought, oh my goodness, I just didn't see it until now, but that's so true. And I wasn't totally emotional, but I, I did tear up and I got, I cried and I said, I'm so sorry. That's really not, that's not fair to you. That's really frustrating. And I said, I'm really thankful that you said that to me. And, and, you know, I, we kind of laughed a little bit too, because he was like, stopping up my eyes with a tissue <laughs> trying to make the tears stop. So we also laughed and, and I really encouraged him to, to share with me. And it was around then that I also had, Lucy had been prior to this sickness, she had been getting some counseling locally and that was really helpful to her. And I thought, you know, that it would be beneficial for Joel too, to have, to have some play therapy and someone to talk to because he had seen Lucy go to counseling and he thought it, it looked like fun <laughs> because it really was fun for her. So we called and got him some counseling as well, which was really helpful just to have someone for him to talk to and play with and, you know, share with in a way that's not intimidating. Absolutely. An outsider's perspective and an outsider to talk to is definitely valuable. I feel like we talk about it a lot on this podcast and I'd say most people agree that there's definitely value to it. Yes. What's their relationship like? 
they actually have a really close relationship. I'm so thankful for that. They really are a typical brother and sister in so many ways. They're really close. They get along really well, but they also argue like crazy at times. So um, they're in so many ways, just like a normal brother and sister. I do think that, you know, Joel is naturally a kind of somewhat sensitive um, by nature, but I think that what Lucy's gone through has caused him to be particularly sensitive and compassionate towards others, which I'm really thankful for. That's a benefit that I see in all of this. He really has a heart for kids who are different, and I think he is always the one to look out for kids who maybe are on the outside, and I, I love that. And that's something we've really wanted to instill in both of our kids is to, to look for those that are on the fringes, that that don't have anyone that are different and that maybe feel alone and to care because they're just like you. They're, they're kids like you. They want to have fun. They want to have friends and look out for those people and befriend them and love them. And I think Lucy's experiences have given him a fresh perspective on that. And he's not afraid of people who are different than him. And I love that. And he's got had to be around kids who have significant physical or medical um, disabilities, whether it's up at the NIH or when we were at Lucy's Make-A-Wish trip at Give Kids the World. And so I think he is not intimidated by kids who are different. And I, I love that about him. That's really cool. I never really thought about that concept of him being exposed to that. So it's sort of normal to him. It's He's so exposed to it that he doesn't know the difference of, you know, what's right, what's wrong, what's, right. you know, normal for whatever that means what normal yeah. does normal even mean <laughs> exactly that's a big thing in my book but it's interesting that he observes that and obviously has more compassion towards everybody given the circumstances yeah I think so I think he's one to really look out for kids who just are kind of on the outside and, and needing to be brought in and I love that and I think that that's some of his nature but I also think it's some of his experience as well yeah, I mean, especially at that young of an age, it's really awesome that you can see that in him. Yes, and he sees there's kids that, that Lucy's met. Lucy's made a lot of friends up at the NIH and kids with a whole host of different medical issues, some in wheelchairs, some that can't talk normally or can't walk, and they're just friends to him, and I love that. And He really loves them like any other friend. So speaking of the NIH, I want you to share a little bit um, – how did Lucy's story become the one featured in First and Human? That's that's another good question. So, and it was a bit of a process. So when we were preparing for Lucy's bone marrow transplant, I got an email from Dr. Freeman, who is your doctor and Lucy's doctor, the, the one um, who's in charge of the Job's protocol there. And she said that there was going to be this Discovery Channel documentary about the NIH and that they were trying to get a feel for patients that they could potentially feature and that they wanted to learn about Lucy's story more. We were really, really thankful for the way they approached it in both the Discovery Channel and the people at the NIH from the communications department really encouraged us to speak our minds about it and say, I don't want you here. I don't want to film this. And we had total control, which was really, really encouraging. And we really hoped ultimately that the project that the show would be an encouragement to others who were walking through difficult medical situations in general, and specifically even that those who have hyper IgE or Job syndrome might see someone that they can relate to, which is 
totally not normal. But when you have a rare disease, to see someone who you can relate to on TV or in an article or anything. So we were hoping that it would be an encouragement to others, potentially even an educational, something that could be educational too, because as you've mentioned, it's an incredibly rare disease. It's definitely underdiagnosed. And we thought, who knows, maybe someone can see her story play out and think, wait a minute, that reminds me of what I'm going through. And should I pursue this diagnosis? Um, or that maybe someone that had hyper, IG, hyper IgE who didn't know about the NIH would be pointed towards them. And in general, we just really feel passionate about the work that's done at the NIH. And we would love the chance for, to be part of that being seen in a wider way in the, in the country. Uh, everyone can kind of see what some of our tax dollars are doing there. And it's such important work. So we were really glad to be a part of it. Now, when we first started filming, I think there were probably about a hundred people that they were filming initially. Oh, wow. Waited to see how things played out. And I'm not sure what it was about Lucy, Lucy particular that really stuck. Oh, come Um, on. How could you say something like that? And um, she definitely took to the cameras well. <laughs> she was not intimidated by the cameras for sure. And she definitely took to that. <laughs> so, and I think having a child was fun. It was, you know, something that they really, they liked having that. And her story did take a bit of a dramatic turn. It was not, it was definitely interesting for television purposes too. So it, it was, I think it fit the mold they were looking for. And we really, to be honest, got really close with the people we worked with, with Discovery. Like it was always a very small field. We had one cameraman and one assistant. Um, and we typically worked with the same two people all the time. We got to know the rest of the camera people and the assistants. But How long did they film for? We filmed for, gosh, probably about a year total. Because we started the summer before her transplant. Um with some of those preliminary visits all through her transplant. And then she had a lot of complications. So she was in the hospital for about five months. And then they followed up with us. They came to our house a couple times after we had been home the following summer. So it was, it was probably the summer before her transplant till the summer after. So it was a really long relationship and we still keep in touch with the producers too. And and they want updates all the time on Lucy. So it really became a special relationship and we really loved them. And there were times where I would say, you know, this is something that I would like not filmed. Um, And there, like when Lucy was after her transplant, she developed a really serious fungal infection in her lungs and it was very difficult to treat. And it kind of came to a head about three months later when her lung collapsed and she had to be sent to children's national in DC for emergency surgery to have her right lower lobe removed. And it was a really, and I know Harper that you can totally relate to this. It was a really stressful experience because her doctors at the NIH didn't know if if this was even the best choice, but our hands were tied. And I, we did not know how she, if she was going to survive surgery, if she was going to survive the recovery. And at this point I was so exhausted and emotional that I don't think that I could have handled saying anything on camera and not sobbing. So I said, you know, let's take a break until we get back to the NIH. And they were so supportive of that. And they really encouraged me and they think they really wanted to encourage me that it's okay to say, to say no to things. And that was really, it was just a really good, comfortable relationship where they really, they really made sure that we knew that Lucy 
and our family was the first priority in the filming process. I love that so much because I feel like you don't hear that. And I guess, you know, part of me was like, oh, this is a reality show, but this is, this is like your life. Right. I know. And there were times where I was like, oh, they're coming into film. And I'm like, okay, I have to throw a bra on and like, maybe like, (laughs) you know, you know how it is in the hospital. Like you are just totally, you're not, you're not like your best self all the time, to say the least. (laughs) Um, So they got all of it. And, but, and even, I mean, I mean, to be honest, they asked if they could film the bone marrow harvest, which was, I was Lucy's donor. And um, the, at the NIH, their communications department was heavily involved in filming. And anytime we had filming, there was always a NIH representative with us and to make sure that we were comfortable. And they came to me and they, they said the woman who was going to be doing the, from the NIH, who was going to be with um, the film crew while during the, the surgery said, I just want to make sure that you're okay with this because, you know, obviously this is a really vulnerable position for you. You'll be in surgery and you won't be awake. And she said, if you are comfortable, what we'll do is we'll have the film crew turn around while they're getting you positioned because I would be undressed. And once you're turned over and draped, I'll have them turn back around. And I said, at that point, I knew everyone well. And I said, you know, it's totally fine. You know, they won't know who's, I mean, by the time they're turning around, they'll see like a little patch of skin underneath a, a big blue blanket um, right. and won't be able to know who it is. But it was one of those relationships where we could kind of speak openly and honestly. And, you know, it was just a very raw and vulnerable time for our family. And I think that led to a closeness of relationships that happened more quickly than it otherwise would have. I just love that they were on your side. Yeah, they were. And there were times even when they would say to me, like, you know what, Jan, I think that we need to step back for a couple weeks and we'll come back and we'll check in. But I think you guys need a little bit of time. Wow. They could have so easily been intrusive and been like, oh, here's real raw, vulnerable moments of this. Right. Let's get them now. They looked out for us and they were, even sometimes when I couldn't even put that together in my brain, they would say, you know, let's, let's check back in in two weeks. You know, I think sometimes if Lucy was particularly just exhausted seeming and just emotional, they would say, you know, let's just back up and we'll check back in in two weeks. And it was really like everything that you would never expect to see in that kind of filming situation. It was really personal and they really were protective of her and of us. So did you watch it last summer? I did. I did. It was not easy to watch, but I think at that point, by the time it aired, Lucy had been home for a while and she had been gotten sick again because she got really sick again about a year after her transplant and it was another really scary sickness so I think coming after that I think I was so like just exhausted emotionally (laughs) that I was just ready to I I was okay with that I was nervous ahead of time and I was really nervous watching myself you know it's, it's always such an uncomfortable experience but they did such a good job with it I think they it was so well edited and for us we really really wanted the NIH to be to, to be seen as for what they do. And we wanted the world to see what a wonderful place this is. And I love just, I loved, I really loved the entire show. I thought they did a fantastic job but, and I loved how they did Lucy's story. And I really loved how they did the other stories. I was totally dragged in emotionally. To, I just was so caught up in these other patients as well. So I really, really loved it. And I thought it was fantastically well done. I agree. I think they really nailed it. And I was drawn into every single story and I feel like I'm the kind of person that I find one story and it's like, Oh, I'm in on this. I was so invested in every one of the stories. So I highly encourage the listeners here 
to check out First in Human. I know it's still available on the Discovery Channel's website, and we'll be sure to link it in the show notes. What was it like for you after it aired? What kind of response did you get? I mean, obviously, that's when I discovered you and reached out to you, but what kind of responses did you get? Well, it was a also all overwhelmingly positive response. I'm sure there probably were negative things out there somewhere, but I was not I was not aware of that. And we got a really positive response from friends and family. But also that was at that point, you, Harper, and many others reached out to me uh, on Facebook. Um, and I was kind of was able to join. I had not at that point been a part of any online groups for Job Syndrome, Harper IGE. And that's when I kind of was around then was when I was brought into some of the some of those online groups to get to know others. But it was a, it really wasn't a door that opened, I feel like it, it opened up a door to connection with other families. And interestingly, I mean, this is what I was hoping for. I even had a woman reach out to me and she, she said that had it not been for the show, she would have never known about the NIH and she has Job syndrome or some variant of it. And she was able to have her doctors contact Dr. Freeman after the show aired and has since been up to the NIH. And she said she would have never known about that protocol if it wasn't for the show. And that was just so moving for me to, to know that someone's life could be impacted by, by it. Absolutely. I had a guy actually recently find me on Instagram who had Job syndrome. I don't even know. I think he found an article that I had written online, messaged me on Instagram and was sort of asking me about my symptoms and treatment and all that. And I mentioned the NIH and he was sort of like, what, what's that? And I'm like, Oh, life's about to change by the way. Yes. Big time. Wow. So that's really cool. And I, I mean, I think that was the big thing for me when Dr. Freeman mentioned that the show was going to be on was just exposing the world to some of the things that we have dealt with, with Job syndrome, these other conditions, and obviously the amazing team at the NIH. That's so great. And just knowing that they're out there. And I think, you know, there are a lot of doctors who have never been exposed to Job syndrome. And even for people who maybe could help their doctors understand better what exactly their diagnosis means or to help their friends and family understand what their diagnosis looks like on a practical basis. Because sometimes it's hard to explain to your friends and family how your life is impacted by something like this when it's so rare and unusual. Absolutely true. So what are your hopes for Lucy in the future? She's 10 now. What does her life look like in your eyes? I hope that she's able to have a healthy life as much as possible and to do the things that she's passionate about. My hopes for her are that she she's not, I don't want her to be defined by her illness, but at the same time, I don't want her to be ashamed of it. I want, I want it to be something that's empowering to her that helps her to know how strong she is and it can give her just an insight into the world she wouldn't otherwise have. So I would, I want her to be able to do the things that she's passionate about in life. You know, I don't want her to be held back by it. I know that there's going to be challenges, but I, I want her to also see the strength she has drawn from her hardships. I hope that she can live a life that's really full and that's what she wants. And what about yourself? What are the hopes that you have for you? That's a question too that I feel like I'm starting to just now think about more as the dust has settled a little bit. Well, I don't know. I, I want to, in the same way, I would love for this 
these experiences we've had to be a jumping off point for other ways to, to serve people in difficult situations. I want to love my family, obviously, and throughout the next season of life, but also to use these experiences we've had, the hard things, to care for others and to serve others in the world. What advice do you have for parents or caregivers to children, especially young kids? So my biggest advice would be to give yourself grace and knowing that when you're in the midst of caring for a child with health issues, that there's just a lot of stuff that you're not going to be able to do. And it's so easy to compare yourself to others, your peers, and think you know, about what they're doing and all the things they're accomplishing. And it's what your your biggest job is just to, to take care of yourself and take care of your family and to give yourself grace. I found, you know, if for those who are married, even in marriage, just my husband and I have found giving ourselves grace and giving each other grace. Like when things are hard, you know, give each other grace. And it's, and it really helps because we're both stressed out sometimes and just know that like, we're going to say things we don't mean and do things that we don't mean. And it's okay that, you know, we're, we're, we're a team and we're in this together, but so to give yourself grace and to be really intentional to take time for yourself, whatever that looks like for each person and which it can be different, whether it's take time to be alone, grab a friend. You know, I had really good friends who were great about saying, do you want to be alone or do you want to have someone with you? Or do you, you know, what is it that you need right now? But have people that surround yourself with people that are going to build you up and make sure that you are getting what you need. And don't be afraid to not respond to people who are pulling from you emotionally. Sometimes you'll have people that are going to drag you down in the midst of it. And that's okay to, to gently cut ties for a time. And, you know, it's, I'm thankful that for, for my part, I had really, really encouraging friends, people that uplifted me and really were there for me. But I've ta- I've spoken with people who that was not always the case for them. They had people that maybe, maybe made them feel guilty for, not being able to do everything, but don't worry about everyone's opinion. Just take care of yourself, take care of your family, and, and don't worry about the things that you don't get to do and that you can't do and that it's okay to let things slide. Yeah, when you're dealing with stuff like this and your life can be pretty hectic, the last thing you want is to have people that are dragging you down or making right. you feel bad. I remember a week after having surgery, a friend and I were trying to connect and she said to me, all right, well, I've come to the West side a lot. Can you meet me on the East side? (laughs) And I was like, and this friendship is done. Like, are you serious? I had surgery a week ago. You can't come to my house. Like, and also, by the way, she lived like 15 blocks from me. So yeah, it's that kind of thing where it's like, it's okay to cut those ties and just to say, you know what? I need to protect myself first. And I need to not, I can't, I can't pour into people who are just going to take. No, absolutely not. It's so exhausting. And, and and I think it's also important to have friends that are not going through this stuff. It's so true. Be reminded of like what normalcy in the world is, again, whatever that means. Exactly. Um, and not just be surrounded only by sick people or parents of sick children yes. to enjoy your life. And as you said, like find the fun in your life and the joy in your life because in order to be a role model to Lucy and to Joel, it's important yeah. to know that you're somebody too. You matter. Yes. And that like, you know, moms and dads have friends too. And then we like to do fun things. And I think that is something that's helped my children and their emotional health is to see me and my husband doing things for ourselves. Yeah. Well, 
Jan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, thanks for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure. It's really interesting to hear stories of other people with the same condition that I have. And obviously, there are certain similarities and differences. If people are interested in connecting with you and maybe hearing more of your story or Lucy's story, where can they find you? Um, I'm not on social media a ton, but I am on Facebook and you can find me there. Um, just Jan Weiss and search for me there. And you can also, we can link, I can, um, I think we're going to link the, the Washington Post article. Yes, definitely. Um, but yep, you can find me on Facebook and also you can learn more about Lucy through the uh, Discovery Channel series. But yeah, I would love to connect with anybody who has similar experiences or who has themselves have has Job's or they have a child with Job's. I always love connecting with others who are, have walked through this or are, are learning to walk through this or in the, any stage of it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you so much. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.